0: a thoughtful faith podcast is a production of mormon stories and the open stories foundation all donations to a thoughtful faith are tax deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for mormons like you to support the podcast or to join the community Please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org.
1: Okay, well, I want to then ask, did he, while you're, you're confessing and you're going through this process with him in the office... Did he at any point say to you, I want you to pray or I want you to read your... I mean, it's really hard for people who are in faith crisis to get those talks from their bishop. I mean, I've heard you say that, right? Where they go in and they talk to their bishop and they say, well, are you reading your scriptures and are you saying your prayers? And that's hard for people to hear. But at this point, did he ever say any of those things to you? Did you start doing them on your own? Tell me if you started personally incorporating any kind of spiritual practice, even meditation or like you were saying, nature walks or talk about that.
0: So early on, he he would ask about prayer and scripture. And, you know, I'm probably a bishop or state president's nightmare because I just said, yeah, the scriptures are the problem. You, the more I read the scriptures, the angrier I get. And you want to talk about why? Let me give you some examples And it didn't take long before he realized that wasn't going to work with me, Um, you know, saying, go do that, right? Go pray and read the scriptures. So he stopped. What he did do, interestingly, is, you know, fast forward six months or a year, he started incorporating scriptures into some of the talks that we would have. And they would be very um, edifying. So one really really important talk we had where where I would just say you know I can't offer you I will never be able to say to you probably I know that God lives. I will probably never be able to say to you that I know that Jesus died and was resurrected. And if if that's a requirement for me to enter back into full fellowship I I probably I could just tell you what you want to hear, but I'm not gonna do that. And I don't think you want me to do that. I don't think either of us grow if I just tell you what you want to hear. But but I said, here's what I here's what I can offer, you know. I have a testimony of love and of service and of compassion and of kindness and of forgiveness and of faith and of repentance and I have a testimony of spirituality, and the importance of being a good husband and a good father. And 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 I and I I rarely get emotional, but at that moment, I I think I started crying, and I said, you know, that's what I'll lay at your altar. If 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 that is enough to, um. For you to want me, and for the, for the church to have me. That's what I'll lay at the altar, and if that's good enough, then I then I I think I can be a part of this. But if that's not good enough, then I'm sorry. That's probably the best I'll be able to do for the foreseeable future. And he like immediately turned to these scriptures in in the Book of Mormon and in I think it was First Corinthians, where Christ just says, "If you have not charity, you have nothing." And you can speak with the tongue of angels and prophesy and that was like i he was able to pull those scriptures out and say it to me and affirm me and then he started crying and he started saying that's absolutely a beautiful offering and we would be honored to have that and we want you here and we'd be so sad to see you go and and there's nothing i want more and tears are streaming down his face and i'm emotional and and i'm so inspired that then i'm going home sharing those scriptures with my children and with my clients incorporating some of those scriptures with some of the LDS clients in my therapy incorporating those scriptures in and mentioning them on my podcast so um, I don't don't say that I I probably read the scriptures uh, a little bit um, but I'm not like read every day or even read every week and I'm kind of looking at, like, my whole view on spirituality has changed in that there are times where I pray, but the formal prayers are not super central right now to my spirituality. Because I, talking to God as if he's a bearded man or anthropomorphic or whatever that's all still an obstacle for me because I don't know what God is. And I don't know if there's really anyone listening in some literal sense. I just don't know. So, but but what's been a change for me is, number one, recognizing that I've been, for 20 years, I looked at the world through one lens and that's the intellectual lens and everything was about making it work intellectually and not only was I neglecting the emotional spiritual and, and familial aspects of my life I was almost running from myself and running from the, the best opportunities I had for true emotional and spiritual connection. You know, Margie, Margie's been really patient with me for many years. She was always got the second helpings of what I had to offer as I was saving the world. And she would reach out to me and say, can we connect? Can we talk? Can we, will you listen to this thought that I had or this story? And I would be like, in my mind, all right, you got five minutes, you know. And then my eyes would glaze over and I'd start getting tired and I would do my best to like, Move on. And <clears throat> the hardest thing is that, is to look back and realize that Margie is this incredibly wise, beautiful, sensitive, spiritual, good soul who, for 17 years, has been trying to really connect with me emotionally. And what I've been doing is doing everything I could to avoid that sincere, true emotional connection. I've been sabotaging the possibility of that, not intentionally. There was just so much denial, but I was so prideful and so caught up in saving the world that I was missing that. And it wasn't just her. It was with my children. Like over the past couple years, one of the reasons I wanted to leave the family was because I felt like my kids were fighting a lot and there wasn't a lot of harmony in the home. And I wasn't connecting with my kids and I kind of blamed Margie that she was always controlling or or whatever. But the truth is, I was not emotionally available to my children. I was physically available to my children. I was at their musical performances and I would make them breakfast and I'd be there for dinner and I would kiss them goodnight and help them with their homework. But when they would like come into my office and want to talk, well, I was editing an episode. And when I could have come home to really connect with them early, well, I had to have that one phone conversation with that person in Boston who's struggling. And and um and so one of the most one of the most beautiful gifts that's come out of all of this is I just put all that stuff on as much hold as I could. I stopped the conferences, I stopped the communities, and I started connecting and investing emotionally in my wife and children. I thought I was, but I wasn't and it's you know you know we talked a bit about people leaving the church and then sometimes falling into dangerous things or getting divorced. I want to say two things on the record: number one is, I absolutely believe that some divorces need to happen, and some people. Their lives improve when the divorce happens. And some families get happier when a divorce happens. And some people, they become more moral when they leave the church or more ethical or more happy. I want to make sure it's explicit that I validate that path completely, that that is all possible and many people do it. But I also want to validate this. That I know many Mormons who get to the place where, when their faith unravels, they start questioning their love for their spouse. They start questioning the importance of keeping the family together, and most importantly, they start. They might find another woman that they think might be their soulmate, or they they start looking at a lifestyle outside, where they say, "I wouldn't have married this person. Um, I wouldn't have made these choices." And all this other stuff now looks like it's what I was called to do. This person might be my soulmate or uh, this life will be the true authentic life. And it can feel very real and compelling and enticing. And it can feel like it's what you were meant to do to, to cast off the shackles of All these bad decisions that you made in association with the church, and then go live this true, authentic soulmate life, possibly with somebody else. And what I just wanted to also go on the record to say is that um, that can be a mirage. And it is also very possible that the love you're seeking, the emotional connection you're seeking, the the emotional and intellectual and even sexual fulfillment that you think will be found by taking a completely different path can be unearthed and discovered and enjoyed right in the place where you've been for 5, 10, 15, or 20 years. If you're willing to not engage the world purely with your intellect, but you're willing to say, emotion matters as much as intellect, and spirit matters as much as emotion and intellect, and love and listening and connection matters as much as intellect and integrity. You can find and discover depths of emotional intimacy and connection and love and fulfillment that you would have thought was not possible where you were. I just want to let listeners know, for anyone who, who may have experienced anything like me, I want them to know that that also is possible. And the price that you have to pay is to take the intellectual down, raise up the emotional and the spiritual and the family and the community connections, and start experiencing life from a multi-dimensional standpoint where your integrity and your truth intellectually that you suppose is legitimate and credible is all that matters, is of primal importance. You're willing to say there's a spiritual truth that's also important, a spiritual whispering and influence and nurturing that also must be listened to. And it is a different language than the intellect. And there is an emotional language that we are willing to often throw out our emotional care and connection and investment in others because we've got our truth and our certainty and our own pain and anguish. And that's what it's all about. If you can plug into that emotions and develop a relationship of love and trust where there's a mutual level of emotional connection and investment. um, And you start frankly, caring more about people than, intellect and ideas and doctrine and theology and history um it can tra- it can transform your life and i know i'm only 6 6 to 9 months into it and i could change next week or next month or in 6 months or a year but i don't think so i think i think i'm i think that as painful as this has been I think I'm committed to um, this multi-dimensional approach to my life, to my family, and to religion, and to my experiences. That I think is gonna is gonna stay a while.
1: Well, let me ask a few um, <clears throat> small questions. Uh, some of these questions came specifically from the Mormon Stories crowd. They wanted to know if, how you view tithing, how you view, you know, like basically the requirements. How I mean, do you care if we talk about that? Those kinds of things.
0: Mm-mm. Nope. Okay. Um, so there is an intellectual. I had to do some intellectual work to get to the place that I am. It's not all emotional and spiritual. But here, here's the way I view things. It's, for me, it's not about whether you're believing or not believing. It's not about the doctrine or theology. It's not about the history. It's not about whether you're in the church or out of the church. For me, there are some transcendent things. There are things I know, things I believe, and things I hope for. But there are things that I know. I know, I know that when I'm living as a believer, I'm happier. That's true for me. When I was, and I don't know what I believe in. Like I can barely put a form to what I believe. All I can say is I believe there's some, and this is something I've been saying for a while, I believe there's some order or force or power that's driving all this. And I don't even know that it's true, but I'm happier when I act and believe as if I do. I know that I am. And I do not think that you have to be Mormon or even religious to to, um, connect in to whatever that power is. You don't even have to believe that it's some existential power. But atheists and secular people and scientists, they still do the things they do for some reason and still do what they do with some hope, some act of faith that it will matter in the end. And and there's a commonality that I believe spans all faiths and secular people of just having this belief and hope that there's something good around the corner, that there's some power or support for you. And that if you're willing to live that way and plug into it, good things are going to happen. And... um so that's god for me right now and i'm you know i hope that that god is some loving mother and father that i can go up to and be embraced by i mean that's beautiful but i don't know that what i know is that if i live like a believer i'm going to be happy i know that jesus's teachings um of love and compassion and charity and service bring joy and meaningful and they're profound um and I, I know that good has come from the restoration, the LDS restoration. Too many good families, too many quality people, too many good things on the earth have, have come from Mormonism for me to look at it as this pox on the history, on the back end of, of humanity. And so um, those are all things that I know. And, the you know my message to non-believers isn't you need to believe or be Mormon. It's more two things. It's more, I don't, I don't care what, I don't care how you do good, but do good. I, I don't care how you, um, you know, it doesn't matter where we plug into or connect with or how we identify. What matters is that we're, Anxiously engaged in love and service and making the world a better place, and if you don't believe in Mormonism, fine. But find a way to do that where you are, right? And what's important to me now is I've 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 rediscovered the importance of things like spirituality, of emphasis on family, of commitment to family, of service, of community, right? Like, I have a testimony that those things are important. And what I want to do is invest in institutions or causes that encourage and support those things. So, if I go to church and take my intellectual cap and put it on the side and start sensing with my emotional and spiritual self, it's beautiful. I love brother so-and-so and and sister so-and-so is struggling. How do we help her? And wow, all these people are in young men's and young women's trying to raise good, good kids. And that hymn made me feel really good. Right? So as long as I'm not engaging too much intellectually, but bringing the spirit and the emotion in, this all feels nurturing and good to me. Now there's things that bother me and there's homophobia and there's sexism and racism and historical inaccuracies. Like that's all true. But that's, but 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 it's also true that I feel a spiritual, and um and an emotional connection, and that I am reinforced morally. I am edified by my community associations, and I'm nurtured spiritually when I go. And so the way that I've we just we just we've been we had been paying partial tithing last year, and we define tithing how we define it. So I'm. I'm not going to talk about how we define tithing, but we have decided to pay a full tithing based on how we define a full tithing starting this year after having paid a partial tithing for a good chunk of last year. And the reason why I can feel, you know, I more than anyone am concerned about the church's position on homosexuals. I am more than anyone. am concerned about the church's treatment of intellectuals and the status of women in the church and the historical stuff. But, When I give to the church now, in spite of them all, in spite of misuse of funds, what I'm investing in is in the elements of the church that nurture family, spirituality, morality, integrity, and service. And anyone that says that the church does not bolster morality, family, uh, service love and basic Christ-like virtues, I think is blinded by anger or frustration or whatever emotional or psychological work that they need to do. Now, it doesn't mean there isn't judgment or meanness or bad things or abuse that happens, but I don't see those things as uniquely Mormon. If the Mormon church were to disappear today, and if every this is what I know by having having tried to build an organization in a community erase all the churches on the earth. It is not like there's going to be gumdrops and jelly beans raining from the sky with unicorns dancing around. There is a human element of of anger and backbiting and sin and and frustration and judgment and bigotry that is going to infiltrate any organization that gets created. And I I don't think that Mormonism is uniquely pernicious or sinister in any of the vices of the human condition. I just don't, don't accept that. I know because I tried to build this pure, righteous, true, altruistic organization. And what did I experience from myself? Pride, anger, judgment, bitterness, negativity, fill in the blank, problems, enmity. And so so I'm okay paying tithing
2: okay
1: so let's um let's backtrack a little bit. You mentioned briefly that you went through kind of a transition with the actual um, organization of Mormon stories. You stopped doing the conferences. you were pretty public about that. You started a few extra podcasts. Um, can you talk about that shift? Was that a decision that you came to um, all of a sudden? Was that growing over time? Did you discuss it with your wife? How did that those changes come about?
0: These podcasts have been in the work conceptually for years, actually. I've owned the domain. I think I bought A Thoughtful Faith before I bought Mormon Stories. Really? Yeah. That yeah. was originally what I was going to name the podcast. But I wanted to, to be welcoming to people who didn't believe and open to disbelief. And so I went with a name that was more neutral. Um, gay Mormon stories, you know, I've cared about the LGBT issues for a long time. Um, and and uh, so what I found is that you, you really, I hate to always go back to scriptural references, but you really are either kind of trying to make Mormonism work or you kind of need to leave it and move on. Staying in this middle ground of anger and bitterness and frustration and enmity, it just cankers your soul. It really does. Like I'm not, my message is not everyone should stay in the church. It's that you should either make the church work in your life or go do something else. Don't just sit and nitpick at people who are trying to build community, trying to nurture spirituality, trying to raise righteous children, trying to make the world a better place. Don't just like make pot shots at them and throw historical or doctrinal problems in their face to be disruptive. Go build your Zion. Go build a secular Zion. But go do something. And so a thoughtful faith was to say, hey, there are people who are trying to make it work. Let's provide them with something that combines thought with faith. They deserve it. They need it. There's nothing out there doing it. I'm not aware... Fair's not doing it. You know, I'm not aware event dialogue has just started, but it's it's very academic. It's a little bit uh, you know, I I I I I don't even know enough to say what the dialogue podcast is totally about. But I just feel like there's a need for thoughtful faith. i have I I've I've asked someone to do former Mormon stories. It hasn't taken off yet, partly because the person that I've talked to about doing it has just graduated with his PhD and he's starting a new job. But the idea there is that if people are going to leave, I want them to move on to something better, to something uplifting and rewarding and moral and happy and fulfilling. They deserve that. I think gays and lesbians, this is the civil rights moment of our generation, and it's going to last another 20 years. And the church will change on this issue. And, you know, no, few people kill themselves because of a crisis of faith, but gays and lesbians are killing themselves every month, uh, because of their sexuality. And it's my research. And so gay Mormon stories is an outgrowth of saying, this is a big problem that's costing lives and we need to start addressing it really openly. We're about to launch a blog called, um, no more strangers, and it's going to be a blog dedicated just to LGBT issues within Mormonism. Um. Uh, and then Mormon Story Sunday School was just this. You know, Jared's just so brilliant, right? And um, and how, it's an attempt to say let's model thoughtful but faithful discourse that that respects scripture and doctrine and theology. And to be honest, I haven't had time to really listen to what Jared does, but I know that there's a lot of people who really value it. And I think it's helping a lot of people. And, you know, we're not trying to, like, influence the church curriculum or, like, embarrass the church into changing. It's just something Jared felt called to do, and I've been happy to support it. And and I hope it's valuable to those who value it. And Mormon Matters, you know, Dan is just—Dan Witherspoon is such a special person. He's—he's— he's, he told me five years ago when I created that essay, you know, um how to stay in the church after becoming disaffected, he called it. He said, John, you figured this out intellectually, but you haven't figured it out emotionally and spiritually yet, and you've got a ways to go. And I was like, Oh, Dan, I'm 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 way ahead of you. And he was right. Dan Dan has been modeling a theology and an approach to Mormonism that I think is is really Mormonism's Best hope at surviving, uh, you know, in conjunction with the people he's brought on. And I think the same thing about a thoughtful faith. So, all these projects are attempts to say, wherever you are, let's help you find a constructive path to a more enlightened place.
1: You, it kind of took years, but it correlated itself with the end of the um, conferences and. Was that just because you really did at some point make a decision that you wanted to just simplify and delegate? And I mean, what was that moment?
0: It was a moment that that I realized that I can, you can't be all things to all people. You can't bring believing Mormons and disaffected Mormons who hate the church together and build a community. There's there's too much. They're they're in different. Spheres they're on different planes, different realms, and so instead of trying to build this utopian integrative community it's to say let 's meet people where they are and give them what they're needing in the direction they want to go, and some of these directions are are not compatible okay, and so yeah, okay. I should mention Mormon mental health we're about to oh, it's, oh yeah natasha i mean i'm I'm becoming a psychologist, and natasha's awesome and mental health is a big issue in the church. So that's... That's These may all die. Like, these could all die tomorrow. If you stop interviewing and Micah stops interviewing, guess what? A thoughtful faith is dead. I'm not going to be able to revive it. (laughs) And if Tatasha stops or Dan stops or Jared stops, it's done. So if you listeners value any of this stuff, support these people financially because they need financial support to make this work.
1: Thank you. (laughs) All right. I want to go back and cover a few things that we skipped, but I... I, I think are important. Um, look, can we address the Tom Phillips?
0: Yeah. So that was a. So for those who don't know, I interviewed a man named Tom Phillips who uh, had served as a bishop twice in the UK and in Australia, I think, and then he became a state president, and then he um, became like secretary to the area presidency in the Western Europe. And then eventually he um, he participated in a very sacred special ordinance that a lot of Mormons don't know about uh, that was really special. And then after that, he lost his testimony of the church and was very public about it and, um, and not only published his story, but also his interactions with uh, Elder Holland, the Apostle, um and uh I I talked him into doing the interview. Uh, it was it was
1: give me st- the time frame of when this happened.
0: I'm a little bit fuzzy on it.
1: Like within the last year.
0: I wanna say it was I wanna I wanna say it was sometime in two thousand twelve. Okay. It was right in the middle of my right as things were turning positive with my state president. Okay. Starting to turn positive. I wanted to say sometime in mid two thousand twelve. I could be wrong. Okay. Um, and he's a really sensitive, delightful, intelligent, thoughtful guy. And he tells a great story, and his story's tragic, and it's heartbreaking. And there's a part of me that believes that everyone should hear that story. I still believe that, and I feel like I, I really disappointed him by having him spend five hours with me, and then telling him I wasn't going to be able to release it but what happened was by that time i was starting to pay attention to to the spiritual and emotional side of me and and i got about 150 of my closest friends together and we had these big debates about should i release it and he talks about this sacred ordinance that he participated in in the interview and it it's the ordinance that happened in the temple and um and that was a really central part of the interview, frankly. Um his story is interesting without that, but it it's a lot like a lot of the other ex Mormon narratives that we've heard of. Tragic, awful, credible, terrible, sad, liberating in some ways. But his talking about that sacred ordinance that happened in the temple really was like, other than the fact that it's he was a state president and had conversations with Elder Holland. That was kind of, to me, what made the the interview most interesting. And two things, three things happened with that interview. One was uh, all the believing but intellectual Mormons that I knew, that I really trusted, who who I felt were living exemplary lives of integrity and compassion and kindness and love and empathy. They all said, don't do it. It'll hurt Mormon stories. It'll hurt the good you're trying to do. Um, so, you know, when when some of these names that you all would know say, I think it's going to do more damage than good and it's going to hurt you, that's, you pay attention to that. Um, and, and the biggest concern was that it talked about what went on in the temple. And for better or for worse, the church has sort of drawn a line and said, if you talk about what goes on in the temple, we're going to excommunicate you. And um, I feel like they have the right to have some things be sacred. And even though you can go up to the internet and YouTube, the temple ceremony, um, I don't think, you know, if I'm tuning into my spiritual self and my emotional self, people's sacred things deserve to be respected. Even if you think it's all hooey, you don't run to a Muslim and make fun of the fact that he prays to Allah three times a day. You don't, like, pull the skullcap off of a Jew and twirl it around and treat it like a Frisbee. But you, resp- you, don't, you don't genuflect to a Catholic and mock the rosary with the beads. I would never do that. So, you know, part of the logic that these people use that I knew inside is you just... When people have something that's sacred, you respect it. And, and to talk openly about what goes on in the temple would be both spiritually and emotionally disrespectful, and it could be counterproductive to whatever good I'm still trying to do. If I get excommunicated, if, if Terrell Gibbons or Phil Barlow won't come on Mormon Stories because I cross that line of talking openly about the temple then I won't be effective. And again, effectiveness has always been what I wanted to be. That was one thing. Second thing was I um, I shared it with my state president. And I said, President Jensen, I've done this interview, and I don't want it to jeopardize what we're doing here, and I don't want to get excommunicated, and I'm interested to know, if, if, if you're okay with me releasing this and he wasn't (laughs) and he didn't, you know, say, I'll excommunicate you. He basically said, you make your own choice and then we'll make ours. But it, I think, uh, I think he made it pretty clear to me that there would be consequences if I did. And the third thing was at the end of the day, I didn't feel spiritually, morally, like it was the right thing to do. And that was terrible. And I told Tom how terrible I felt. And the deal I made with him was, you deserve this interview. You spend five hours with me. I promise you that I'd release it. And I'm going to give it to you in full. And you can decide what you want to do with it. And that wasn't me finding a way to release it without releasing it. It really wasn't. It was me showing him respect that he gets to own his story. And, of course, he decided to share it. So... You know, that was his decision. But I I would have felt wrong not giving him the audio, but I would have felt bad releasing it. So letting him decide what to do with it felt like the most moral and ethical thing to do. And, you know, some people have listened to it, a lot of people haven't. And I would just caution people that if they listen to that interview... There are sacred things talked about that are offensive. And, you know, keep that in mind.
1: So from from this point, this vantage point right now, as you look back, what's the good that's come from all of this?
0: Some people have asked how we, how we deal with our kids and how this has affected my family. And there have been times where, especially when it became severely stressful for my family, where I just really... Like I said to Margie, I said, There's, this has pretty much been all awful, hasn't it? I said, this morning we ran together around the track, and I'm like, I'm just gonna tell him how awful it's been. And she's like, no, that's not, that's not the way I've experienced it. And the phrase that Margie likes to use is that life is wise. That life presents you with challenges and opportunities And it's, there's wisdom in it. And I don't even know that she would say she believes in anthropomorphic God. Like, I don't know where her beliefs in God are, but she's got this conviction that life will keep presenting you with opportunities to learn and grow if you'll be conscious enough to, to receive what life is trying to communicate and the lessons life is trying to teach you. And she went and listed all these amazing things that she feels like has come from this process. Um, we did pull the kids aside four, five, six years ago and, and and basically said, we don't believe like everybody else. We're struggling in our faith. Here's all the issues with the doctrine and theology that we don't believe in. And here's all the historical problems. And this is when they're like 12 and 10 and eight. and And then when they're 14 and then when they're 16, we've been having these conversations for quite a bit. And they went inactive with us, <clears throat> then they came back with us, and then I went inactive again, and um what 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 margie what Margie felt was that <clears throat> number one, having candid and open conversation with the kids about these difficult things, number one has made them very thoughtful and mature about life, and I don't want to brag about my kids, and you know we're all unfinished products. But going through this family process of processing the difficulties with Mormonism has led to a level of depth and maturity and thoughtfulness that I don't think we would have gotten if we had just sort of stuck with the program. Uh, We we were never anti-church to our kids. Certainly I had issues with Joseph Smith. Certainly I had issues with the church's treatment of things. But the way we handled it was to say, it is your journey. There is good in the church, and there are difficulties in the church, and we want you to have your own experience. You can ask us questions, you can learn from what we're doing, but we were going to work hard never to disparage the church, never to make you leave or feel like you need to leave, but to let you have your own journey, even when we had checked out completely. And... And we would even encourage the kids to go, and we wouldn't go if, if we sensed that they wanted or needed it, so that they, they wouldn't feel like they had to choose between their loyalty to us or their desires to go. And um, what we feel that allowed the kids to do was at a formative stage, disconnect from the formula that is correlated sort of vanilla uh, Pablum Mormonism because they were never going to be normal cookie cutter because of who their parents were and because of all the information that we gave them. And I can see orthodox conservative Mormons saying that's an awful thing to do because you're in Jeffrey Holland's talk about how you're poisoning future generations comes to mind and it's probably risky theoretically and maybe even in practice to one extent. But what we found is that it, uh, by detaching from the formulaic they were able to own their own spirituality and own their own relationship to the church and own their own morality and ethics and social structures and I was surprised when my daughter Anna decided she was going to go to seminary because she wanted to and I was like what are you doing You don't, I don't, I'm, I'm not telling you you have to go and she's like I want to go dad I'm like, okay. And then when she got all active again, I decided that I was going to support her. And then when Maya was feeling sort of atheistic, I felt like I wanted to support that. But then she started wanting to go again. And finally, Margie and I were pretty much inactive. And and Maya and Clara just were all feeling spiritually and emotionally called to church. And you could say it was just social manipulation or pressure. But... We feel like they were doing it with their full emotional, spiritual, social, and intellectual senses all intact. Having a full knowledge of our issues and everything, that's what they chose to do or have been choosing to do for now. And um, that allows for, that. that's a gift to children. It's a gift of authenticity. There's like this, there's this like veneer not a veneer there's this like permeation of authenticity in our family where you say what you feel you say what you think you can disagree you can make decisions that are different and you know knock on wood who knows how this is all going to end but nobody's in their closets anymore and everybody feels like they're doing what they need to do and most importantly our kids absolutely know that we will love them no matter what if they're gay or lesbian we will love them If they're devout, dogmatic, believing Mormons, we will love them. If they leave the church and never want anything to do with it, we will love them. And I think at the end, one of the central things that every human wants is to feel like they're going to be loved unconditionally for whatever choice they make. And again, knock on wood, we feel like our kids feel that. And we feel like that's been a good thing. Our kids have a level of tolerance that they wouldn't have had before. They love their gay uncle. They love their gay cousin. They um, they stick up for uh, gay kids at school that are made fun of, sometimes to their own social peril. And how wonderful of a gift it is that they love atheist people. They don't look down on other churches. They believe that all churches have truth and good. And they don't judge smokers, and they don't judge drinkers, and they don't judge people. You know, they they worry about the dangers of those things, but they no longer believe that people are inherently more or less valuable based on their distance too close to or from the church or religion. And I hope they continue that. I think that they will. But this whole journey has helped them get to that point. They respect differences. And the bizarre thing is right now, all four want the church in their lives in spite of everything. So um it's kind of ironic and I, anecdotally I have evidence to support this that if you want your kids to stay in the church in the 21st century this is your best bet at making that possible. Um and I think your your least you know for the for the dogmatic orthodox people who want to criticize me or this approach it's the ones who've been raised close minded bigoted, sheltered, judgmental, rigid. They're the ones who break most often and leave. And it's just ironic because I can't even say now I'm really excited that they're totally active or really want them to leave. Now I just want them to be happy. But it's just ironic that doing these things that most people would say would destroy their relationship with the church by letting them choose they've chosen it there's been a lot of hard stuff too but uh I think I think I've I think I've communicated through the the podcast what what those difficult things have been so okay
1: wonderful there was another thing you wanted to say and I've forgotten you wanted to talk about what good has come of it and
0: just what I believe now so start with your line of questioning and then I can add we, those things on can at go the for. end. Okay.
1: Yeah. So um if you want. Yeah, no. Okay, so let's go back to the same line of questioning that you received a year ago, January two thousand twelve, and start with the top. What do you think about God?
0: I consider myself a believer in God. And uh i'm i'm now segmenting things into what things i know, things i believe and things i just kind of hope for and i i know that i know that i've felt some type of power and influence that i can't explain and i i know that my life is better living as a believer for me but anything that starts moving into the form of god Starts moving into the categories of belief or hope. So again, do I want loving, heavenly mother and father to embrace me? That's a beautiful ending to this existence. Um, so if that happens, it's a bonus for me. But right now, it's enough to live as a believer and to and to plug into the resources that that being a believer provides to me personally.
1: Okay. Do you believe in Jesus and do you believe in a divine Jesus?
0: Kind of a similar answer. I have a knowledge that the the core teachings of Jesus are profoundly true for living a a good, righteous, spiritual, enlightened, compassionate, ethical life. That's where my knowledge lies. Um, as we get to the, historically, I do think that, I do think that there was a historical figure named Jesus who taught these things. Like, I'm, um, some have said that I've denied that Jesus ever existed. I've read the evidence for and against a little bit. And I think where I'm right now is that I think there probably was a Jesus and that he lived. So I'm not denying that. Um, the divinity stuff Starts moving into the hope category. Uh, I don't know that I even hope for a version of the atonement like I've kind of mocked in the past, where there's some cosmic scale, and you have a certain amount of sins, and someone had to pay for it, and and Jesus had to take the hit for that, and God had to you know assign that pain to Jesus, or we wouldn't have been able to go back to heaven. Like none of that. I don't even know that I hope that's true because it feels like there are better ways to for heavenly father to make things right and to have us all return to him but um is there a resurrection and is there an afterlife and did you know that's something that i think would be beautiful and i have hope and faith in i want to live with my family and friends and everybody else in the afterlife i want there to be an eternal life of goodness and joy. I don't want this mortal existence to be the end of it. But if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. Where I have a strong belief again is that my my love and testimony in Jesus is that this historical figure did teach these truths and did die for us to... Um, help us live a higher law of love and compassion and service and charity. And and those teachings, as I've started to try and really apply them in my own life in the past year, have saved me from ruining my marriage, ruining my relationship with my children, uh, ruining my own life. And so I do view Christ is my Savior. But I also recognize his core teachings in every other religious, significant religious denomination, including the non-Christian ones, and see Christ's attributes in so many of the atheists and agnostics that I know. So I can call Christ my Savior and believe in those teachings and still validate every path that reflects those virtues.
1: Okay, um, Joseph Smith, where do we stand on the restoration?
0: <clears throat> I I believe that the restoration was inspired by the same force that I that I call God, and that doesn't mean it wasn't flawed. I I kind of view I, I you know, Phil Barlow really helped me with this in that thoughtful faith interview I did. He said it's not so much the church um the The church is perfect, occasionally mawed by the flaws of mankind. It's more like the church is completely mortal and flawed, and it's one group of people's attempt to understand and interact with the divine and I think that every major religion that exists is a group of people trying to collectively understand spirituality and God. And so I believe that Mormonism is as legitimate as any incarnation of a people's attempt to access the divine and the power of the divine and the beauties of the divine. And yeah, it's, it's a mess, but every other religion is a mess. If you peel back the covers and secularism is a mess and science is a mess, and they're all beautiful. And I see the Restoration as a legitimate spiritual and social um, endeavor, enterprise.
1: So what about the Brethren now, today, in terms of being called, inspired to lead?
0: I believe that the Brethren are really good men. I believe that they are spiritually in tune in many ways and live in many ways lives of virtue and service and of Christ-like lives. I believe that in many ways they are enlightened in ways that I'm not. And I respect their uh, authority to lead this church. And absolutely believe that that they're attempting to tap into the same divinity that I'm attempting to tap into and that to be honest the difference between me and them is that they have a different set of responsibilities and obligations that I have only come to fully appreciate once I started to try and grow my own organization and saw how complex it is to lead a group of people it's terribly complex and fraught with difficulty. And so, you know, do I wish that they were more progressive on women's issues and race issues and and gender and sexuality issues? Yes. Do I feel like they make wrong decisions? Yes. But I respect their character. I respect their manifestations of spirituality. And I think... All in all, they've done a really fantastic job leading this church to what it's become, which is over 14 million people, millions of wonderful families and people, and people who go out in the world and do really important and significant things, who are governors and presidential candidates and Senate majority leaders and politicians and mothers and businessmen. All the Mormons I know are generally just good, kind, loving people. Not better than others, but good. And I believe that the way the brethren have led the church, you can't argue with what, you know, if if a factory produces a good product, you have to respect the factory. And the brethren have been the leaders of this, of this organization. And I, I see it as a positive enterprise, and I respect their mantle.
1: Where do you see... Mormon Stories going. What's the future in terms of your podcast?
0: I, you know, I'm in a it's a it's a I'm always at a crossroads, but uh donations have been slipping as of late. I'm not like playing a violin and saying feel sorry for me. I've been able to make a good living off Mormon Stories. My supporters have been very generous and it's frankly allowed me to um, I'm very grateful, and it's allowed me to go through my PhD without any any debt. And, you know, our cars are kind of beat up, and our kids get a lot of their clothes from Plato's Closet and, and Desert Industries. And, you know, we've sacrificed a ton of income that we could have made in our retirement. Um, but at the same time, I'm super grateful for the support we've received. But because I've gone back and forth so much, like a lot of the believers... Became alienated when I started getting negative, and then a lot of the angry or disaffected people. Now that I've kind of put the brakes on the negativity, have also, and then there's so many podcasts now. There's a million of them, a million more of a podcast now, and some lots of people just move on. They lose interest. They, they just don't want to hear another hour of talking about Mormonism. So, to, you know, donations are in decline. And um, I'm I'm trying to find out what to do that would still be interesting. To be honest, I think what you and Jared and, and Natasha and Dan are doing is a lot more interesting than what I'm doing. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, if the donations keep going away, I won't be able to financially keep doing this. Um, so that would just make it stop. Uh, but... Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to graduate hopefully in two and a half years. I have another year and a half of school. It's a six year program. Then I'm going to do my internship. And ideally what Margie and I want to do together is um, start a practice where we do couples counseling, where we do couples retreats, where we do therapy for individuals who are either in a crisis of faith or gay and lesbian, sexuality issues, or marital couples, you know, we would really like to parlay this into an attempt to help people in pain, but from hopefully a place that's more grounded and emotionally connected and spiritually connected and loving and virtuous and kind and all those good virtues. So that's the goal. Who knows if that's gonna become a reality. I've still got my dissertation to defend and neuroscience, neuropsych to take and and those types of things. But, you know, if we can find a good rhythm, the future would be me and Margie um, doing our best to help people live happy, healthy lives to the extent that we can help um, and and have the podcast be an arm of helping people find happiness. And what form that takes, I actually have no idea because I don't know how to keep it interesting. Like before it was get Richard Bushman or get Grant Palmer or get Daniel Peterson or let's talk about polygamy or sex or, you know, controversial things. And I'm just sick of that. I'm sick of the historical stuff. I'm sick of the controversy. I just want to help make people's lives better. And it's hard to do that in a way that's interesting. So I'm. I guess I'm making an appeal to people who have visions for how I can turn Mormon stories into something wholly constructive and not step on a thoughtful faith's toes. Um, I extend that invitation of ideas. And if it's just time for us to be like Seinfeld and sign off, that's okay too.
1: So in terms of your spiritual future, what, what are you looking for?
0: Um, as I as I think back to a, a way to conceptualize my path is to dig back into my childhood when my parents got divorced, and you know I was just just I thought we had a great family and I thought our family was going to be eternal. I thought my the world of my parents and. The idea of anything other than that just didn't seem possible. So when my parents got divorced, when I was like in sixth or seventh grade, I think that was really devastating to me. And, you know, my sisters were way older, so they had gone away to college, so I never really got to connect with them. My brother was, you know, in high school, and he was living his life. And I got this, I I think as I look back now, I got this feeling that people leave you. And people disappoint you and you can't really rely on on anybody, any one person, because ultimately they're going to fail you. So what I think I did is I said, OK, well, then I'm going to I'm going to be as social as I can, make as many meaningful relationships as I can, work as hard as I can, study as hard as I can do as well in school as I can, be as successful as I can. And I will develop so much contribution that is meaningful to people and so many relationships that are at least at a surface level intimate that if any one node, if any one person or group of people fails me, I'll be so busy saving the world and I'll have so many other relationships that I'll be okay. And so it's like my life was about doing and collecting relationships. And what I'm trying to be committed to now is realizing that the first connection you have to have is with yourself. There's so many of these people that I've been working with over the past eight years, there's emotional work that you need to do with yourself. There's spiritual and psychological work that you need to do to heal from the past, to to find your own inherent worth that isn't so much tied to doing, isn't so much tied to thinking, but it's tied to being, to being in the present moment, to looking at what is immediately around you and investing there first. And so to me, that involves simplifying. And I've done a little bit of a bad job with that with all these podcasts, frankly, but I have simplified my life quite a bit without the travel, without the conferences and without the communities. It's living a life that's Again, balance between intellectual, emotional, spiritual, and relationships. It's it's integrating exercise and diet and fun, something that I haven't known anything about for about 20 years, starting to have fun, starting to enjoy and live a happy, fulfilled life instead of raging against the machine, always cerebral, always angsty. And... um and it sounds so trite and it sounds so simplistic um superficial i don't know but i've got a taste i've got 6 to 9 months of it and i could just tell you it's as sweet as the way lehi describes the fruit on the tree living a a life that that has y- your health at the center and then your most important relationships as the primary investment, your spouse, your partner, your children. And then, and then going from there, doing what you can. Um, but, but most importantly, being emotionally connected uh, and spiritually connected. It's, it's born beautiful fruits for me. And it means that I can't be the savior of the world it means that I got to put the ring down and throw it into the pits of Mordor. It means that I. Um, it means that I. Uh, it means that I have to stop and read to my son before he goes to bed, and listen to my teenagers when they put down the podcast, and listen to my teenagers when they come in and want to talk. It means I have to be there emotionally for my wife and listen to her, and value what she has to say, and connect with her. For me, it means going to church and getting that spiritual nutrition that I need and investing in the ward and in my elders quorum and in the friendships here in my community. And that needs to be my foundation. And if I do anything above that, it's got to be with that stuff in place. And so that's that's where I want to leave it. And if I never do another interview, I hope that that's what I leave with with everybody is that this feels like the right path. And it's one that if I ever stray from, I hope you guys will remind me that, that, uh, that this is the way and I hope to stick with it. So we'll see.
1: Thank you so much. I've had a wonderful, um, time listening to you and, uh, I know I don't want to be one of those people that thinks John Dillon, but but I really do appreciate everything you've had to say.
0: Well, Sarah, you're doing great work and you and Mike are doing great work and I wish this podcast all the best and to all the listeners out there, sorry for all my mistakes, but thanks for your support and let's all grow together in good ways.
2: All right, let's do it. Come the of every blessing to my heart to sing
0: the grace. Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at a The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafraser.com.
2: Melodious song. I'm fixed to